All right, good morning. Good morning, you guys. So good to see you. Happy 2022. Holy smokes, yes. 2022. It, ever since we hit 2020, I feel like every year sounds like it's so in the future. Like the number sounds weird to me. Maybe that's just me, but 2022 sounds so strange. I was born in 1979, in the summer of 79. So 70s, 80s, 90s, 1000s, 10s. This is my sixth decade of life, like the sixth actual decade of being alive, which is just so crazy. 2022, it just, it, it truly goes by too fast. Um, if we've never met, my name is Jay, and I'm part of the team here. Uh, Lisa already said it, but especially if you're new, maybe, maybe you're here because you visited us on Christmas Eve, and you're like, man, there's something here I want to be a part of. Or maybe like church is a New Year's resolution for you, or maybe you're watching online, you're kind of checking things out. If you're new to us, I just want to say a special, special welcome to you. We're so thrilled you're, um, you're, you're here today. We hope that eventually this place will, will feel like home to you. We're just really, really glad you're here. And for those of you who've been around for a long time, here we are, you guys, brand new year. And uh, lot, yes, four of you want to clap for the new year. <laughs> Heather Russell and seven other people are excited about 2022, and the rest of us are like, eh, Oh, man, last year was a little weird, so I don't know. Either way, though, uh, let me begin here. I, um, the new year is, for me, like it is for almost all of us, uh, one of those times when the, when the calendar year changes, my mind usually begins sort of rushing ahead, you know? It starts rushing ahead to what this new year could have in store, and I I find myself sort of needing to take a deep breath and pace myself like, okay, don't get too far ahead. It's okay. Like, let's just see how the year unfolds rather than just like making all the plans and this is 2022 and this is how I'm going to, whatever. But what's really interesting to me is that for the last 13 years of my life, the new year has also been mixed with um, some nostalgia. And the reason is because uh, Jenny and I, my wife and I, we got married in early January of 2009. And so every time the calendar year changes, there is a part of me that's like, new year, let's go. But now, for the last 13 years, there's also a part of me that's like, holy smokes, we've been married for what now it'll be 13 years, right? In a week, she and I will celebrate 13 years. And what's really interesting to me, yeah, that's, <laughs> those applause are for Jenny, who, who has withstood with determination and grit 13 years of shared life with me. It's not easy, you guys. Um, but uh, what it's done for me, it's, it's actually been, been a really surprising gift because Every January, I find myself um, pulled in these two directions. On the one hand, like excited or, or, or anxious or whatever, looking ahead to the year that is to come. But also every January, I find myself looking back, considering the gift that has been our marriage, all the ups and downs and the challenges and just all of the stories, right, that we have shared together, Jenny and I. And so every January now, I find myself in this strange but beautiful and profoundly helpful position of both looking ahead and also looking back. And that's one of the gifts of, of having an anniversary that falls in January. And I share that with you only to say today, 
I just want to spend a few moments as we begin the new year together, this first Sunday of 2022. I just want to spend a few moments helping all of us sort of live in that moment. In looking ahead for sure, but also considering backwards. All that is uncertain before us, but all that we know has always been true and will continue to always be true. Because when I think about January, for me, I have no idea what 2022 is going to look like. I mean, I have some thoughts, I have some hopes and some dreams for sure. I have some anxieties and some fears maybe, you know, but I don't really know what the year holds in store. But what I do know is the story of my life with Jenny. What I do know is that no matter what is in store this year, the love we have for each other, the strength we find in one another, our mutual commitment to follow Jesus together and to love and care for our children, like all those things are certain for me. And they're certain because I can look back on history and know all of that to be true. Make sense? That's what I want to do for us today. Not, not for you to find your hope in my marriage, but you, you get what I'm saying, right? <laughs> it's like, everyone, trust me and Jenny and just, no, that's not, no. You get what I'm saying. There is much that is uncertain before us, but there are some things that our own histories and the history of the world tells us is true and is never, never changing. To do that, I want to begin by reading a psalm, Psalm 46. It is um, a well-known psalm, and you'll see why it's well-known, because there's a line in here toward the end that even if you don't know the rest of the psalm, we're going to get to a line near the end where many of you are going to be like, oh, I know that line. So this is Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall, but he, God, lifts his voice and the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. And he says, here it comes, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Psalm 46, verse 10, there's that line that many of you know. Be still and know that I am God. Your grandmother probably had that, that, that verse embroidered on a quilt hanging in her hallway, right? Like, you know that line. Many of you know that line. Be still and know that I am God. Now, because of this, many people assume Psalm 46 is a psalm of peace and tranquility and serenity. 
But we just read the entire psalm. And actually, most of the psalm is the opposite of peace, tranquility, and serenity. Most of the psalm is about the earth giving way, the mountains quaking, nations in uproar, and kingdoms falling. Now, when we read the psalms, many of you know this, it's poetic language, right? The psalms are actual poetry. It's Hebrew poetry, and so this is metaphorical language. And when you apply the metaphor... Uh, to your own life, what you realize, even now, thousands of years after this psalm was actually originally written, this is the beauty of Scripture, like, we can relate to the metaphor. When we think back on the year that has been, or even further, back on the several years that have been leading up to this moment now, we can relate to the metaphor. It has often felt for many of us, if not most of us, like the season that has been has felt like the earth is giving way, like the mountains are quaking, like the nations are in uproar and kingdoms are falling, yes? I mean, the language applies. It's like this is metaphorical language we could use to describe the last couple of years, especially. And in reality, it's language we could apply to, to the entirety of our lives. The reality is it hasn't just been the last couple of years that have felt like the earth is giving way, the mountains are quaking, and the nations are in uproar, and kingdoms are falling. When we apply the metaphor to our own personal lives, what we realize is this is just the story of human experience, that life itself so often feels like the earth is giving way, the mountains are quaking, the nations are in uproar, and kingdoms are falling. Everything feels uncertain. There is anxiety and fear and tension and pain and grief and loss. This is just what human experience is. It's often full of stuff like this, stuff that feels uncertain. And we have glimmers, these moments of joy, to be sure. I don't want to paint a picture that's like super downer, right? The reality is, of course, we experience the highest of highs as we also experience the lowest of lows and the long plateaus of just boredom and mundane life, or so it seems, right? We can relate. The point here, though, is that that famous line, be still and know that I am God, this line that we, we read and we think like, oh man, it sounds so peaceful, so beautiful, so, so tranquil, like so calm and gentle. That line is found in the midst of chaos. That line is like the, the, the anchor point of an entire psalm that is full of chaos. And that's extremely helpful for us and hopeful for us because our lives are full of chaos. And I don't just mean like on a national or global level, that's certainly true, but even our own personal lives so often feel like the earth is giving way, the mountains quaking, nations falling, and, and uproar and kingdoms falling, right? That, our, our personal lives feel that way so often. I was just reading recently, actually, um, some data, some statistics about burnout in uh, the American workplace. And this isn't even touching on our personal lives, right? This is just in, like, the American workplace. This is really recent data. It says that 52% of all American workers, they think, 
feel burnt out. 52%, over half of the American workforce feels burnt out, which is actually up nearly 10% from pre-COVID numbers. 27% of all American workers, so more than one in four people who are working, uh, admit that it is almost impossible for them to unplug from work, to shut it off, to stop working when they're not working. 75%, 3 in 4, of of all doctor visitations in America today are due to stress-related issues. 3 out of 4 connected to stress. And stress and burnout are the most common causes of long-term sickness in the American workplace, by far. Stress and burnout. Listen, this is just professional life. Like, I won't even delve in, and there is a lot of data. I won't even delve into the data about our personal lives because I don't want to be that much of a downer on this first Sunday of the new year. But just know it is dark. Like, we are in, we are in a difficult place as Americans, and in particular as um, Silicon Valley, citizens of the Silicon Valley. Like, this, this stuff, like, the pace of life, the breakneck pace and speed of achievement culture that we see in our entire country is actually accelerated here in the valley. You know this, right? This is a difficult place to live life. And it is, a, it is almost nearly impossible to achieve like healthy balance in life here in the Silicon Valley. You feel this tension in your life. I share this with you not to depress you. I share this with you because I want you to know that Psalm 46 and the Bible as a whole understands our plight. And there is an answer. There is an invitation to a whole new way of being, a whole new way of living life. And that's what I want to do today, just for a few moments. Because in the midst of the uncertainty and the chaos, in the midst of the burnout and the stress, the invitation of Psalm 46 is what? It is to be still. Now, when we read that word, It sounds, in English, that phrase sounds like the invitation is to literally stop moving and to do nothing. And while that sounds somewhat appealing, the reality is if that's what the psalmist means, then that's problematic because to to literally not move and do nothing, while it might provide you temporary rest, doesn't actually solve any of the problems. But the phrase, be still, um, the English translation actually does us a disservice. In the original language of the psalm, it's the Hebrew word rafa. And the word rafa doesn't mean be still as in don't physically move or do nothing. Rafa is actually an active word. It's an invitation to do something. And that something to do, rafa, it actually means to let go or to release or to relinquish. In the, in the context of Psalm 46, what most scholars believe is that the best uh, translation of the word rafah wouldn't be be still, but it would actually be surrender. So the best way to understand Psalm 46.10 in the context is in the midst of nations in uproar, kingdoms falling, the earth giving way, and the mountains quaking, in the midst of all the chaos and anxiety and fear and uncertainty, surrender 
and know that I am God. That's what God says. Surrender. It isn't be still. It isn't surrender. It isn't like release and relinquish into the ether somewhere. It's not like, hey, just stop doing anything, do nothing, release all of your cares and your worries just into the ether and let it be. That's not what the psalmist is saying. The psalmist is saying is, in the midst of all the chaos and all of the anxiety, all of the fear, all of the uncertainty, surrender all of that to God and know that he is God which means you are not. This is an invitation to recognize that all of the chaos and the pain and the uncertainty and anxiety and tension is too big for you to solve on your own. This is an invitation to recognize and admit and acknowledge that there is only one God, but that that one God cares enough and is more than capable of handling whatever chaos, whatever tension, whatever anxiety, whatever fear you carry. That no matter how much the earth gives way or the mountains quake or the nations are in uproar or kingdoms fall, he is God. So surrender it to him. That's the invitation. It makes me think of... um, Jesus' words in Matthew 11. You know that famous line where he says like, hey, come to me all you who are weary and I will give you rest. You guys know that, right? That, that line. If you don't know it, it's okay. Jesus, our great teacher, savior of the world, he has this beautiful line, Matthew, 28, or Matthew 11, verses 28 and 29. He says like, hey, if you're tired, come to me. If you are weary, all who are weary, come to me and I will give you rest. Uh, the late great writer Eugene Peterson, he paraphrased the Bible. It's not a, not a direct translation, but a paraphrase. And Peterson's paraphrase of the Bible is called The Message. And many of you have read that paraphrase of the Bible. It's really beautiful, poetic language. And I love Peterson's paraphrase of Jesus' words in Matthew 11. He says this, Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. The unforced rhythms of grace. The invitation to be still and to know that he is God is an invitation to cease our striving to let go, to surrender, and to sink deeply and confidently into the unforced rhythms of God's grace. To say no and to resist the pace that culture invites you to live. To say no to the hurried, achievement-oriented pace, breakneck pace, literally will break your neck and kill you, sort of pace of Silicon Valley. And instead, to say yes to the fact that God is God and that you are not, and that he has no limits, but that you do. And so what you are to do 
is to surrender all of your anxieties, fears, chaos, tension, all of your hopes, all of your dreams, all of your aspirations, to surrender them to God and to enter into his unforced rhythms of grace. Now, how do we do that? There are several things, but I want to continue by just giving you one practical thing to start this new year, and I've hinted at it already. We say yes to God's invitation to be still, to enter into the unforced rhythms of his grace by eliminating hurry from our lives. This is something that many of you have already thought about, know, maybe you've done some reading on this, and I think that is a good thing. Um, Culture at large whispers this lie to us, especially Silicon Valley culture. It whispers this lie that a hurried life is a productive and successful life. But this lie is diametrically opposed to a healthy spiritual life. Now, I want you to hear me clearly. What I am not saying is sit back, be lazy, and do nothing. That's actually not the biblical invitation. It's not actually about doing more or doing less. It's actually about the pace at which you do whatever you do. And by pace, I don't even necessarily mean speed in a literal way. What I mean is the posture and condition of your heart. Um, Sometimes I really feel this when Jenny and I go to Costco. (laughs) And we have two young children, which means lots of food we have to buy, especially for my son, who is a three-year-old that weighs like the size of like a seven-year-old. <laughs> He's just like a big boy, very dense, and he loves food, you know? He <laughs> loves food. And so Costco, right? And uh, we're both, you know, we're both really busy. We, ideally, we'd love to go to Costco during the weekday, like on a Wednesday at, you know, 10 a.m. when like less people are there, but we can't. So when we go, we go like during prime time. We have to go during prime time, which is like Saturday at 11 o'clock, you know? And my son, the entire hour and a half we're there, all he wants is like the hot dog, you know, from the, he's like, hot dog, hot dog. And every time we get in line at Costco, I feel this tension. And this, this is, it's kind of funny, but it, it'll be helpful. When I say we have to eliminate hurry from our lives, Again, I'm not talking about speed. Think about your life like a Costco line. Like the Costco line moves at a particular speed that I do not control, yes? But whether I feel hurried or not, I do control. Some days, on my best days, I stand in that Costco line and I enjoy the extra time with my kids. We make jokes, we tell stories. And um, other days, I do not enjoy the time. I feel hurried. I feel anxious. I feel like, why? Why is that person up there? In fact, I'll give you a better example. I'm digressing. I might go over time, but this is a good example. This past week, we had the week off, and me and some friends, uh, we took our kids, family friends, we took our kids to a a really um, popular Mexican restaurant, 
And uh, in this Mexican restaurant, you have to actually wait in line based on the type of meat you want in your tacos. And so I get in the carne asada line, which is obviously the most popular line, and um, I'm waiting, and there's probably four people in front of me. So I'm thinking to myself, this place is really fast. I'm thinking to myself, this is great. This is great. It's only four people. We'll, we'll get our food. We'll be on our way. And then the lady at the very front of the line, this is just this week, the lady at the very front of the line, she speaks in Spanish. And I took Spanish for three years in high school, but I'm really rusty. But I heard the words, trente, which is 30. And I was like, did I hear that right? That cannot be right. And sure enough, you guys, this one woman orders 30 carne asada tacos. So I'm standing in that line, literally not moving for like 20 minutes. And you can imagine what happens in me. There's nothing I can do to control the speed, but there was something I could have done to eliminate the hurry. I just chose not to because I needed my tacos, you know? <laughs> okay. The late, great Dallas Willard, he once famously said, some of you know this quote, he said, you must ruthlessly ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. A hurried life is a sign that we have anchored our lives not on God, but on our own ambitions, plans, abilities. A hurried life indicates that we've compromised relationships for the sake of results. But here's what the scriptures say about the pace of our lives. Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Our friend John Mark Comer, in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, he says it this way. In the end, your life is no more than the sum of what you gave your attention to. I love that thought. That bodes well for those apprentices of Jesus who give the bulk of their attention to him, Jesus, and to all that is good, beautiful, and true in his world, but not for those who give their attention to the 24-7 news cycle of outrage and anxiety and emotion-charged drama or the nonstop feed of celebrity gossip, titillation, and cultural drivel. Convicting, is it not? The way we eliminate hurry is not by changing our circumstances. You do not control much of what 2022 will bring your way. It will just happen. But you do not need to be hurried. You can live at the pace of the unforced rhythms of God's grace if you would choose to do so. But it begins with the transforming of our minds. We'll get to that in a moment. Let me show you what I mean, though. I want to show you an image here. This is called the Mueller Liar Illusion. Now, I just told you it's the Mueller liar illusion, so I gave away the answer to the question I'm about to ask. Which line, horizontal line, is longer, the top or the bottom? The bottom, wow, I just told you it's an illusion, and yet many of you still said bottom. Now, this, this displays my point. Why? I just told you it's an illusion. I just gave you the answer. In fact, I'll show you the next slide. The lines are the same length. They're the same length. But even though I'm showing you this, still, what is your brain telling you? No way, dude. That image is a lie. The bottom line is longer. The bottom line looks longer, right? 
The Mueller liar illusion is actually, it's a great example of something that researchers call the difference between system one and system two of your brain. And there's a lot to this. If you're interested in it, um, a researcher named Daniel Kahneman wrote a book several years ago called Thinking Fast and Slow. Has anybody read that book? Yeah, several of you. It's a fantastic and mind-bending book. But basically, what he says is that your brain can be compartmentalized into two different sections, system one and system two. And it's very complex, but the, the, the basics of it are that system one of your brain is the part of your brain that's just instinctive and reactive. System one of your brain is the part of your brain that looks at those two lines and says the bottom one's longer than the, the top one. On to the next, right? I don't need to know anymore. I don't need any more evidence. That's it. And I'm just going to move on. System two of your brain is the part of your brain that would like pull out a ruler and print out that image and like take the ruler and actually measure and go, oh, they're actually identical. Now, what does that mean? I'm oversimplifying here, but what does that mean? That means that system two of your brain goes slower. It takes longer. It requires more discipline. You have to actually do the work. System one of your brain is the part of your brain that's lazy. Doesn't do any of that. It's just like, oh, bottom line, longer than top line. On, onward, next, right? That's, that's that part of your brain. And why does this matter? Daniel Kahneman, the writer of Thinking Fast and Slow, he says this. System one continuously generates suggestions for system two. So the fast part of your brain, the reactive part of your brain is always suggesting ideas to the slower, more disciplined, thoughtful part of your brain. It's, it's suggesting impressions, intuitions, intentions, and feelings. And if endorsed by system two, impressions and intuitions turn into beliefs and impulses turn into voluntary actions. Okay, why do I share all of this? If you want to eliminate hurry from your life, you cannot do it in a hurry. Let me say that again. If you want to eliminate hurry from your life, you cannot do it in a hurry. Make sense? System one of your brain will constantly tell you, you have to do this right now. Just react, go, and then move on to the next thing. Be productive, do more, achieve more, attain more. That's what system one will tell you. But if you wanna eliminate hurry from your life, you have to tap into system two. The part of your brain that is more disciplined, that, that is slower but steadier. It's more thoughtful. It thinks more critically. It engages more deeply. This is why Paul says in Romans 12, do not conform to the pattern of this world. We might say, do not conform to the pattern of Silicon Valley, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Rather than fixing our minds on the things that feel reactive and instantaneous, we have to slow down enough to fix our minds on the things that are not just the things that don't just feel true in the moment, but things that we know are true because we have all of our own personal histories and the history of the world to show us. This is why Paul also says in Philippians chapter four, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. 
to say yes to God's invitation this year to be still and to know that he is God, we have to begin to eliminate hurry from our lives. And to eliminate hurry from our lives, we cannot do it in a hurry. We have to invite the Spirit of God to slow us down enough so that he might renew our minds. So that rather than fixating on the problems to be solved or all that is uncertain or all that feels chaotic, we instead fix our minds on that which is true, noble and right and pure and lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. The stuff of God that has always been true and no matter what this year brings will always be true. Several years ago, I was with a friend of mine named Jack. And Jack and Dot were both in their 80s. Jack was in his late 80s and he was, uh, he was a part of our church community at the church where I was on staff at the time in Santa Cruz. And um, I went to visit Jack and his wife Dot in their home uh, because Jack was dying. And uh, again, he was in his late 80s. He had lived a long and fruitful and beautiful life. He had um, cancer and it was eating away at him. And so I went to go spend some time with Jack and we spent hours together that day, myself and someone else from our church staff. Uh, we spent hours with Jack and Dot, ate lunch, heard stories, he showed us old pictures, and I was just asking him questions about, and you know, Jack was one of these guys, he, he had faithfully followed Jesus for decades, you know? And now that he was near the end, mostly I wanted to spend time with him because I was so enthralled by his level of peace and his um, sort of centeredness on Christ, even in the midst of his pain. And I was just enthralled by the way he exuded such joy, even though he knew he was going to have to say goodbye to his wife and his kids and his grandkids and his friends and his family and his church. And he and I read Psalm 46 together during that time. We read Psalm 46 while I was sitting with him over lunch. And we kept talking and toward the end, I just asked him, I said, Jack, how, I just got to ask you, how, how is it that someone who is this close to the end of life on this side of eternity and in this much pain, how, how are you so at peace? And he thought about it for a while and he said several things. And then he mentioned Psalm 46. He said, remember when we read Psalm 46 earlier? I said, yeah, I remember and he said, well, I think the reason I have so much peace is because I'm just doing now what I've been doing for decades. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, Psalm 46, Jake. So what do you mean? He said, I'll never forget these words. He said, I just try to be still and carry on. I just be still and carry on. And a couple months after that, Jack passed away. And when he passed away, I thought about that conversation. And here's what I realized. This, this part was so sort of beautiful to me. I realized that what he said to me that day in the years of his life that he had lived 
according to that principle, to just be still, surrender it to God and carry on every day, I realized, oh, Jack is still doing that in the presence of Christ now. He is still in the presence of Jesus, living fully and embodied without pain in the unforced rhythms of God's grace. There was a part of me that wondered, I wonder if Jack like, was a bit confused when he got to heaven because he was just doing there what he had done here. You know what I'm saying? That's the gift God offers us. We don't know what 2022 is going to bring. We don't know if it's going to be a great year or a terrible year or something in between. In a room this size with this many people, I guarantee you, 2022, for some of us, will be fantastic. For others of us, it will be very hard. And for many of us, it'll be something in between. We don't know. But what we do know is that he is God and we are not. And that he cares and he is capable of navigating you through whatever tension, whatever chaos, whatever pain, whatever anxiety, whatever failure, whatever shame, whatever guilt may come your way or that you are carrying now. And all you need do is be still, sink deeply and surrender into the unforced rhythms of his grace and eliminate hurry from your life and allow him by his spirit to renew and transform your mind and to be still and carry on. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your grace, for your immensely patient and spacious grace where there is room enough for all of our tension, all of our fear, all of our anxieties. And we thank you for inviting us into that grace. And we pray that you would give us enough trust, enough faith today to surrender, to be still, to let go, to release and to relinquish all that we have been holding on to, all that we've been carrying into your care, into your caring and capable hands as we trek into this new year with you. We love you and we thank you. Pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.